Thanks for tuning in to Mountain View Fellowship's weekly podcast. At MVF, our mandate is pointing people to Jesus by fostering relationships. We know Jesus cared for people and placed a lot of emphasis on relationships. So we do too. We believe that we're created for relationship with God and that He gave each one of us a desire to belong. If you'd like more information about MVF, connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. I'm Mike James. I'm the growth pastor here at MVF. Um, Growth pastor just means I'm focused on how all of us can take our next step with Jesus, just one step at a time. And we are in a sermon series called Faith That Works, and it's all about the book of James. Um, My name's Mike James, so it just works out, right? There we go. Okay. Well, let me tell you just a little bit about why I'm excited about this series, and it's my interaction with the book of James. Uh, When I first became a Christian, I was actually an engineer, and I appreciated James. Very direct, very practical, just black and white, away we go. I loved it. And so I spent a lot of time reading James. And um, things were pretty good. I got married, continued in, had some kids. Things were fine. Um, But there was this thing that was behind. And uh, when I grew up, I had a nickname. And one of the nicknames that I had was Towering Inferno. Okay? Maybe the red hair, maybe the height. But the real thing was um, I could go from zero to 60 with my anger in a sec right? You push the wrong buttons, and I was one of those that would fly off. Um, It was not good. And I carried that in to my family. And there was one particular time, I was doing a lot of traveling, I was still an engineer at that point, and um, that particular night, my wife had to go do something, and she asked me to cook dinner. And I was pretty put off by having to do that, um, just because I had been on the road, and I just didn't want to do it, and whatever. And I said, fine, I will take care of it. I don't know what possessed me that night because what I cooked was something that when it showed up on my plate as a kid, I hated. And yet that night I chose to cook macaroni and cheese with tuna fish. It is not a recipe you want to repeat, right? Okay, so I bring this out. At this point, my wife is home. I bring it out to the table. I present it to the family. Uh, Our kids are, we had four kids at that point between ages two and eight Everybody starts whining and complaining, okay? Justified, yes, but it pushed my buttons. And I stood up, and I'm yelling at them about how ungrateful they are that they just can't eat what's in front of them, okay? And, of course, to emphasize my point why I'm screaming and yelling, I took my fork, and I threw it down. And it stuck in the table, sitting there quivering, right? My six-year-old son at that point, who is now in the Army, he's got like a Ranger tab and an Airborne tab, he's a pretty tough guy, but at six years old, he was scared. And he's sitting at the end of the table just bawling, and he's going, Dad, I'll eat it! And he just try, he's trying to gag it down, right? Okay? I'm mad, I'm like, fine, whatever, I leave the house, I get in my car, I turn it on, and luckily the Holy Spirit just took a hold of me and convicted me of what was going on. And so I sat there for a while, probably yelling still in the car for a bit until finally I calmed down. And I went inside and I apologized to my family. Of course, my wife at this point is preparing real food, right? 
but I apologized. But it was a wake-up call to me that this anger was continuing to characterize who I was. And so, uh, with the help of a friend and, of course, the Holy Spirit, um, I found this verse. James 1, 19-20. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. I memorized that verse, and I was transformed by it. Now, can I still get angry today? Yes, I can. But I'm not characterized by it, and I don't get to the same level anymore. And I can't take credit for that. That is purely the Holy Spirit. That is purely God's Word working. And that's my hope for all of us. And I think James is just one of those books that provides plenty of opportunities for us to feel convicted, and that's not so fun, but to be transformed and changed. And so that's why I'm excited that we're, we're in this. Um, last week, Pastor Don kind of introduced the book of James, and he gave you a few things. James was written by the stepbrother of Jesus. Uh, it was probably the first book or letter that was written in the New Testament, probably about 48 or 49 A.D., we're not exactly sure. And the first couple of verses tell us that it was written to the church scattered abroad. So basically, um, at that point, the Christianity was starting to move abroad, and, and so that's who it was to. And that's us as well, so this is a book definitely for us. Pastor Don also gave you a challenge that, you know, the book of James has got five chapters, and so he suggested that every weekday you read one chapter. And we're going to just keep doing that every week while we're in this series. Um, that way, by the end of it, we will have all read the book of James five times. James actually doesn't take very long to read, but that way you'll be familiar with it, and it'll give more opportunity for God to work in your life through it. Now, a couple of new things I want to just add to that background. Um, first of all, the church at that point was under tension. Persecution and martyrdom had kind of started, but it wasn't as bad as it would get until maybe 10 to 15 years later when, for instance, James himself was murdered. Um, but at that point, the tension was largely because the church had been built of all of these different people, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, all put together. And the tension was largely between two things. One was, on one hand, justice, which kind of became legalism, and the other side, grace, which was becoming pervasiveness, just anything goes. And so those two things were always in tension with one another. And if you read many of the other letters in the New Testament, you'll see that is a continual problem that the church was dealing with. I think it's a thing that we deal with today. Legalism versus grace, trying to figure that balance correctly. Many uh, church fathers, kind of the people kind of in the 3rd and 4th and 5th century that wrote a lot about um, the Bible, they weren't too fond of the book of James. And in fact, Martin Luther, a little bit later, you might know the name, Martin Luther, um, he actually wrote that the book of James was a straw epistle, meaning he thought it had no weight. There was nothing to it. And he thought it had nothing to do with Jesus. Now, Martin Luther wrote a lot of great things, but he was completely wrong about that on the book of James. You see, the book of James actually quotes the words of Jesus' teaching more than any other New Testament other than the Gospels. When uh, James wrote down this letter, um, at that point, the, the Gospels hadn't been written down yet. They wouldn't be written down until somewhere between 55 and 58 AD. So at that point... Um, all of the believers had memorized Jesus' teachings. When they got together, that's what they would do. It was an oral tradition. 
They would talk about what Jesus taught, people would memorize it, and they'd know these things. And so while in a lot of other scriptures, you'll see they'll quote Isaiah or something, and a lot of times even in our Bibles, it's like a little indent, and you can tell that it's a quotation from somewhere else. James quoted Jesus not by saying the entire saying of Jesus, but maybe a phrase or part of a sentence. And because of that, the believers who had memorized it, when they heard it, it was like, ding, They knew right away what he was going to cover, what he was going to go into. And so he didn't have to cover and fully quote Jesus. He just had to start the discussion. And then it was like, you've heard Jesus say this. This is how to make it happen. Or this is the thing we need to work on right now. And that's the book of James. Okay? And so as we go through it today, I'm going to show you some different ways it crosses over. Now it turns out, Matthew 5-7, to which is what we call the Sermon on the Mount, and Luke 6, which is called the Sermon on the Plain, those are James's primary source material as he goes through this. And so I'm going to expand that challenge a little bit of us reading James. I'm going to suggest that you read the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain this week. And you'll start to see the interchange, the intersect about Jesus' words as well as what James is saying. And today I'm going to jump back and forth between Jesus and James a couple times as we go through this. Now, if you've already read James a little bit, you know it seems a little scattered, right? You'll read something for a few moments, and then all of a sudden it's a right-hand turn to something different. Um, Now, he may have had ADHD, I don't know. But the big thing is, is I think it's more like jazz a little bit, okay? So you got this baseline tone that's going, this bass theme. And then there's little improvisations of different instruments that happen along the way, right? And that's pretty much what's going on here. Another way to think about it is this is kind of like the the samples of a collection of the top 10 uh, sermon podcasts at that point, right? So James was in charge of the church in Jerusalem. He had been probably preaching to them to some amount. And I think what he did is he took little sermonettes, little pieces of his sermons, condensed it down, and that's what he put in these letters. And so that's what we have is a whole collection of these little sermons. The outline of James is kind of like this. Chapter 1, there's a greeting, and there's three tests of faith. Three ways that our faith is tested that is brought up. Chapters 2, 3, and 4 then go through these sermons. There's about seven little sermonettes at that point on each of these tests, going through those themes. And then chapter 5 is kind of a summary, and I think because he had his attention, maybe there was a little more papyrus left, he adds in a little couple more sermonettes on prayer and encouragement. Okay. Today we're going to be going into chapter 2, And chapter 2 is focused on the test of faith in loving others. And it's really this question of, are you willing to actually love other people? Now, before we dive into it, I think it's really important we take a sideline. I'm going to follow James a little bit. It might seem a little scattered today. I'm going to jump around a little bit. So just, just hang. It'll connect, maybe. We'll see how it goes. But before we start, I really think it's important for us to talk about something that we call the gospel the gospel, right? How many times have you heard the gospel before in your life? If you've been in church for a long time, probably quite a bit, okay? If you're new or you're not quite there yet or a new believer, maybe you haven't heard it quite as much, okay? But if you have been a believer for a while, do you think that you understand the gospel to the point that you can share it with somebody else? Pretty well, okay? See a couple of head nods, that's good. All right, let me turn up the tension just a little bit. How would you actually define the gospel? So right now, I want you to think about it. Maybe write it down. 
Think about it in your head. What is the gospel? All right, so if I have you guys raise hands, are some of you willing maybe to come up and share your answers? Add the tension just a little bit more maybe? Don't worry, I'm not going to have you do that. Uh, I kind of decided for myself that 2021, one of my goals was going to be to spend more time diving deeper into the gospel to really understand it more. And actually kind of started a little early in November and December, I started reading a number of books as well as just going through scripture. Some great books about gospel fluency and about how it just permeates everything and whatever. But I started to notice that so many of these books never actually defined the gospel. They would talk around it, but never really define it. And I thought, you know, I'm not sure I can totally define it either. Um, So I started to, again, think about this and everything I come up. This past week, I asked a number of people, how would you define the gospel in a short kind of sentence? And I got a number of answers. What do you think was the most common answer I heard? John 3.16, right? For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that whoever or anyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It's not surprising that that's what we use usually to define the gospel. Oftentimes, the gospel is presented at a church, this is how it's going to kind of be presented, right? This is an incredible key truth to our faith. Jesus did this for us so that we could have eternal life. It's all about good news. It's about grace. It's about salvation. This is all true. But I think we're missing something here. You see, Jesus' death and resurrection in the four Gospels is contained in these eight chapters. Eight chapters go through it. They're pretty long and dense chapters about his death, his crucifixion, and being laid inside of a tomb, coming back alive to prove that he really was the Son of God. But the thing that I think is missing is the fact that the Gospels have 89 chapters. What about the 81 other chapters that aren't about his death and resurrection? And the fact that those four books are called the Gospels tells us that maybe, maybe the key to the Gospel isn't just death and resurrection. Maybe it's all of Jesus' teaching. That's a little bigger. And in fact, Jesus in his own ministry said it this way in Luke 4. He was standing in front of a a synagogue and he quoted Isaiah and then added to it. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. You notice the language there? It's not hey, I'm going to do something and sometime later everything's going to be great when you join me in eternity. The language is now. I am here now. I'm going to step into people's brokenness now and they're going to have freedom. So maybe the gospel is a little bit bigger than we narrowly define it. And it's really about now and eternity. So I've been working a little bit on a definition. Here's what I've come up with. The gospel is God's redemptive work for fallen human beings and the restoration of his perfect creation through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. That's a bit academic, isn't it? 
It's, it's maybe some vocabulary that isn't part of our normal vernacular. The words are kind of weighted. So, so I, I have a better one. Maybe this one's a little better. The gospel is the good news that we can have a relationship with Jesus now and forever while he forgives, heals, and transforms our brokenness. Is that set a little bit better, maybe? Okay. So it's about relationship with him now and forever. And it's about him taking care of that brokenness that we all have. I think this works. And even looking at the story that I shared about myself early on here, I had my saving moment, the moment I accepted Christ, my John 3.16 moment in August of 1990. My brokenness about my anger wasn't transformed until the spring of 2001. If I approached the gospel as a one-and-done thing, that I, I had my saving moment and that was good enough, then I would have missed that transformation that God alone did. And for me, the gospel continues to be a lifelong transforming force a chance for me to have relationship and to choose Christ instead of my own selfishness. And I think that's what the gospel is about. Author and pastor Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, we will never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something more advanced. The gospel is not the first step in a stairway of truths. Rather, it's like a hub in a wheel of truths. The gospel is not just A, B, C, but it's the A to Z in Christianity. The gospel is not the minimum required doctrine to enter the kingdom, but the way we make all progress in the kingdom. We are not justified by the gospel and then sanctified by obedience, but the gospel is the way we grow and are renewed. It is the solution to every problem, the key to every closed door, and the power through every barrier. Now, one more thing, too, about this, this kind of maybe different way of looking at the gospel. We know from the beginning, the beginning of the Bible, that human beings were created in the image of God. But sin very quickly entered the stage, stained and distorted that image. I hate to tell you, but you're not the perfect image of Christ. At least not yet. And so that is that process that we have, lifelong to become more and more like Christ, to become better image bearers to the broken world around us, so the hope that we have within from Christ. Theologians will call that sanctification, but it's this lifelong process of becoming more and more like Christ. And the gospel itself is how we fulfill verses like this to put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. We will never be like Christ, but we become more and more Christ-like over time if we're growing. Now, why am I harping so much on the gospel right now before we dive into James? Because he doesn't seem to approach the gospel completely. I think the gospel is so key to everything. It's our understanding of it deeply impacts how we approach our walk with Christ, our growth, how we evangelize others. If you've heard me talk before, I usually come to this. God or Jesus gave us six words to live by. These are the purpose of our lives, to love God, love others, make disciples. 
And if we sit back and we kind of just say, well, you know, I'm saved, I'm good. I've, I've got the insurance policy for eternity. I know I'm not going to the, the smoking section, right? The box is checked, I'm good to go. If we approach it that way, I don't think we do these purposes in our lives. Loving God, loving others, making disciples. It's like we're a caterpillar that's starting to be transformed to a, a butterfly, but we get in the cocoon and we just stay. And we never are fully transformed. Uh, here at Mountain View, sometimes you'll hear us ter- use the term fat tadpole. And it just has to do with the fact that there are some places in the U.S. right now that tadpoles are not progressing into frogs. They stay a tadpole and they just get huge. They get big. We don't want you to stay as a cocoon or a fat tadpole. We want you to grow into a butterfly or a frog, depending on your looks. Okay? (laughs) It's important that we just do it to grow, to be engaged. Don covered this last week, James 1.22. Don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourself. We just have to do it, people, don't we? And just in case you're questioned, this is what Jesus said. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against the house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and the floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. It's important for us just to do it, to follow the words and to engage. Now, James, when he wrote this letter, I think he correctly saw human beings as being broken, as being fractured, inconsistent. In the book of James, you'll come across, there are seven times where he calls out and he says, the trials and the tests in this life are there so that Jesus can transform us to make us perfect. And his definition of perfect really is whole, healed, and transformed. And so this letter, while at times is tough to read because it's very convicting, it's really all about encouragement in our brokenness to pursue the gospel that is the good news that in Christ we can be transformed. So what's the gospel again? The gospel is the good news that we can have a relationship with Jesus now and forever while he forgives, heals, and transforms our brokenness. And now, with that in a good view, I think we can go ahead and move forward to to chapter 2 and dive in, because that gospel thought process is so important. Otherwise, we're just going to be having these rules that we're going to be following that that James directs us to. Now, chapter 2, again, is about the test of loving others. And the first sermon that we encounter is on favoritism and prejudice. And again, the setting to keep in mind is the early church was a combination of Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, just like the church today. It's a mix of people. And that created tension. Some people were caring for others, but not caring for the people that weren't like them. The theme for this particular sermon and everything is set up in James 1.27. It says, Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God, the Father, means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Back then in that culture, if you were a widow or an orphan, you had no social standing. You were seen as worthless, 
There's no point in investing in you. You're at the end of a line. Just get out of our way. And so James is calling the church to do something countercultural, to take care of, I don't know, as Jesus might have called, the least of these. Then the king will say to those on, your right, on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Caring for the least of these and those who need it is a way to show that we care for Jesus. And James jumps right into this. Uh, First verse, chapter 2, he says, My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Christ if you favor some people over others? He goes right at us, doesn't he? Nice gut punch. He then spends the next couple of verses kind of expounding upon this whole, you know, wealthy and rich and, and which one are you taking care of? And then verses 8 and 9, he says, Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal laws found in scriptures, love your neighbors yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. He makes it worse. It's not just a bad thing, but it's actually a sin against God, and you are guilty of breaking the law. The truth is, we tend to help those that we think down the road might be able to help us. It kind of sometimes is self-serving. Of course, Jesus commented on this. If you are kind only to your friends, how can you be different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect even as the Father in heaven is perfect. Now, a little bit of a trigger warning again. As we go through James, James is... It's a bunch of sucker punches. It's a bunch of gut punches and just right hooks that you don't see coming. Well, of course, he continues here and he says, So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have shown no mercy to others. But if you've been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. Starting to feel a little convicted, maybe? Do you tend to judge people a little bit? And it's telling us we're not supposed to. You tend maybe not to show mercy when somebody is a pain. Okay, you know it's coming. This is what Jesus said. Do not judge others and you will not be judged, for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. Now just to clarify here, just so you know, this is not about judging if somebody's doing something right or wrong. We are supposed to look and see how people's actions are. The judgment here is deciding whether they have worth, whether they could ever be saved or not. That we have to leave up to God. And if we judge somebody's worth, then that is what Jesus and James is talking about. So let's say, do you have some favorites? People that are maybe like you, those are the ones you help? Or maybe you help those that you think, well, they deserve some help. Or maybe you judge somebody based on your prejudices. And I hate to tell you, but all of us have those instead of how God sees them. Well, then if you do it that way, snap. (laughs) Hard times are coming. 
Now, let me set up a, a story for you for a moment. In, envision a, a traditional church, right? Traditional church setting. Lots of wood, stained glass. You got pews. You got a big pulpit at the end. Uh, carpet that runs down the middle, right? Okay, it's Sunday services, and the church is full. Let's say somebody who's really rich, a wealthy person, or let's say a famous person shows up and walks down the middle of the aisle, comes up to the front, and there's no seat. Now, actually, let's do it this way. Von Miller shows up, okay? Von Miller walks down the aisle. He's there standing there in front. What's going to happen? I know some of you. You're going to offer your seat right away to him, right? It's Von Miller. Of course I'm going to offer my seat. All right, let's change the story a little bit. Instead, it's a homeless person that shows up. Hasn't been to church before, doesn't know how it works. Dirty, smelly, walks down the middle of the aisle. Preacher's still preaching, but all eyes are on this homeless person. Nobody's really paying attention anymore. They're trying to figure out what's going to happen. The guy comes to the end, isn't offered a seat. He just sits down. A few moments later, an elder of the church stands up, walks over there. All eyes are watching. They know the elder's going to walk up to this, this guy and, and help him up and take him to the back of the church. Instead, the elder walks up and sits down next to him. That's what James is talking about. He sits down next to him so that he'll be comfortable. Now, what happens if I tweak the story just a little bit? Because we, we, we all hear that story and we go, okay, yeah, I would do the same thing, right? What if that person walking down the aisle is a meth addict? What if that person is a veteran? What if that person is a Republican or Democrat, depending on which side of the aisle you're sitting on? Or an illegal immigrant? What if it's a black man in a white church? Or for that matter, what if it's a white man in a black church? Do any of the way that we should approach it change? None of it should change. We should still be loving others. And yet, the truth is, we all have some sort of hang-up, don't we? There's some group of people that we have a harder time loving. Perhaps we have to have that lifetime transformative power of the gospel in our lives. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Galatians, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ. The truth is we're all broken. We all have prejudice, we have those favoritisms, and we have to have the perspective of the gospel that we're in process of being transformed and everybody else can have a relationship with Jesus and be transformed too. All right, so now like James, I'm going to end sermon number one. We're going to transition to sermon number two here. Um, sorry to have to be a little brief and direct. I think that someday we could and probably should have a sermon series just on prejudice and favoritism and justice and walk through this. Um, I'm sorry that I can't cover it deeper, and I know I think you guys get the point, and we all have some work to do. Now, the first sermon in chapter 2 was about the who are we going to help. 
The second is more about maybe our motivation or the why. Okay, It's about the test of our faith in loving others in terms of works of charity, what we do and why. And like a prize fighter, James dives right into it. He ends one and goes right in. Verse 14 starts and it says, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but you don't actually show it with your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing and you say, Goodbye, have a good day. Stay warm and eat well. But then you don't do anything to give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Some translations will say, unless it produces good works. So works and deeds are being the same thing. He continues this for a little bit. He goes into the Old Testament, pulls out a couple Old Testament characters as backup, and then he summarizes with this gut punch. Just as the body is dead without breath, so faith is dead without good works. Now, how can faith be dead? We tend to think about faith bringing life, right? How can it be dead? Jesus' words. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. A dead tree doesn't produce fruit. There's a lady who has a couple apple trees in her backyard. The apple trees are dying. They only produce fruit that doesn't ever fully ripen. It just ends up kind of rotting on the tree. She complains a lot to her husband, and and then incredulously one day she sees her husband walking out with a ladder, a bag of apples, and a staple gun. And he climbs into the, the apple trees and he starts stapling apples on, right? It looks like there's good fruit. But the truth is, that fruit's going to rot as well, right? It's not connected to any life-giving source. That's kind of the point here. If we do things that are intended to make us look good in our actions, but they're not actually outpouring of our faith in our relationship with Christ, they're worthless. They're going to die. Instead, it should always be that outflow of our relationship, our hearts overflowing with the way that Jesus is working in us. And that's what gives us good works. We do things just because we have to at that point. We need to. Not out of compulsion, but just, it's just who we become. Now, some of you may be sitting here and you say, Mike, something doesn't quite work here. You've maybe heard some other scriptures before that had some similar language that seems to contrast. For instance, you've probably heard some things from the Apostle Paul. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that anyone can boast. So basically, James is saying uh, faith without works is dead, but Paul is saying works don't matter, it's only faith that matters. And those seem to, you know, just be against each other, don't they? They don't don't seem to mesh. Just to tell you, Scripture never contradicts itself. And when it seems to, it's just because we don't have the right perspective yet, okay? And sometimes it takes a little bit. So let me give you a perspective on this particular problem. Just a quick little timeline, okay? You see, in the middle of the timeline is salvation. That's the John 3.16 moment we have. On this side, we're not quite Christians yet. That's where Paul's writing is at. Works does not earn salvation. You cannot do enough good things to clean up, to make up for your sin. 
It's only your salvation through the faith you have in Jesus. Jesus alone saves you, not what you do. That's what Paul is saying. But the moment you have your John 3.16 moment, the moment that you believe in Christ and you give your life to him and you start to grow, that's when James comes in. And again, James is saying, works should come from your salvation. They're a way of saying, thank you, God. They're not a thing that, again, we, we have to do. We got a, a to-do list and we got to check these things off. It's when you see opportunity, you just do it. I was with somebody last night. They surprised me a little bit. We, we stopped somewhere. They rolled down their window. There was a homeless guy. I didn't even see him. And the guy I was with, he just grabbed a bag of snacks and he said, hey, you want some snacks? I got some and started just giving them to him. He didn't plan that. It just happened. And it was an outpouring of the faith that he has in Christ. So, Paul, pre-salvation in this case. James, post-salvation. If our view of the gospel is only that John 3.16, then Paul has value and James does not. But as soon as we start to see the gospel as that whole entire life thing, that we're all on a, on a timeline that the gospel covers completely, then both have value in our lives. And both are remembering. One, to continually remember that Jesus alone saved us so we don't get proud, and that we need to be showing others who he is by loving them best we can. We are saved for eternity, but we're saved to make a difference now in this broken, fallen world we live in as we love God in order to better love others. So where are you this morning? I know we've kind of gone fast. These are quick rounds here. Where are you at? If you're saved, are you showing it? Are you showing love to other people around you? And if you sit there and you go, maybe, maybe I'm just not saved right now, or maybe I'm not showing it. If not, then why? Why aren't you showing it? I can only really think of three conditions for a Christian that would that make us not to show our faith in loving others. The first one is maybe you're really not saved. Maybe you've stapled on those apples. Maybe faith is something you've stapled on, but you really haven't connected yet. It's important that you actually make sure you have a relationship with Christ that you're growing. The second one is maybe you're just lazy or distracted. Maybe the worries of life have just come up and they've taken over and you're, just, you're looking at your own stuff instead of looking around. One of the best ways to help yourself through tough times is to look up at God and figure out how you can look sideways and help others. And the last one is maybe you just don't feel equipped yet. You're just like, I'm, just, I'm, I'm new, I'm still growing, I'm not quite ready. That might seem like the safest answer, but by the way, that was a trap, okay? Because the only way you can get equipped to help others is to actually go start. And once you start helping others, that's when God is going to step in and he's going to, through the Holy Spirit, equip you, grow you, transform you. To wrap up, I got four challenges for you this week. Number one, keep doing what Don suggested. Read through the book of James each weekday. Um, pick a chapter and go. Second, I already talked about it. Read the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain this week. Um, you'll start to see those intersections between the two. Number three, find ways to love others. Maybe especially those that are usually hard for you to love. 
people that are different from you, people that maybe, maybe they whine a little bit more than you're used to or want. Helping people isn't always just giving them food or something like that. Those are great things because we know we have that need around us. Sometimes helping somebody is purely surrendering some of your time to them so they can talk and they have somebody who's actually listening and praying actively for them. You know, also kind of be creative. I know this, this cold snap that we had recently, maybe people are going to have a hard time paying their utility bills, paying their propane bill, whatever it may be. Maybe that's just a simple way that you can step in if you have means. If you don't, and, and if you find somebody who has needs that you can't completely take care of, I suggest you lean into a life group if you're part of that, or certainly reach out to us and we can try to share some resources so we can help somebody. And number four, I think, remember the gospel is for now and eternity. Be thinking about that, meditating, thinking it through this week. And again, the way we're kind of talking about it, the gospel is the good news that we can have a relationship with Jesus now and forever while he forgives, heals, and transforms our brokenness. Let's go ahead and pray together. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for this morning, for just the incredible opportunity of being able to worship together, worship maybe a few more of us gathered at once, but just to be before you. God, I thank you that you sent your son Jesus. I don't want to minimize what he did on the cross for us because it's only through his work on the cross that we are saved, that we are forgiven of our sins, that we are healed. Thank you for that. And if there are folks here who haven't made that step yet, Lord, I just pray that you, through your Holy Spirit, work through that and provide opportunity for them to find ways, find someone to talk through that with. For the rest of us who have been walking with you, Lord, I just pray that this is a wake-up call for us, that we are able to lean deeper into you in our relationship, looking, of course, ahead to eternity, but knowing right now that's where the gospel is, to transform us, to change our hearts, to allow us to become a little bit better every day of bearing your image, your joy, and hope to the hurting world around us. Provide opportunity this week, Lord, so that people can reach out and help those around them, people that aren't like them, so that, again, you'll be glorified and we can live out your words. Jesus, thank you for loving us long before we were lovable. Amen.